You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thanks so much for joining me. I am excited to come to you today to talk about one of the biggest issues facing the history, or facing the country. I don't know why I said history, but it could be a historical catastrophe if we do nothing. Let's talk about it. It is the reformation of Social Security. And here to talk about it is our friend Jack Salmon. He's a Young Voices contributor and a writer on economics. His commentary has been featured in a variety of outlets, including The Hill, Business Insider, Real Clear Policy, and National Review Online. And he's written an article called Social Security Needs Bipartisan Solutions in RealClearPolicy.com, one of my favorite sites. I check it every day. Jack, thanks so much for being here. We really do appreciate it. You know, Social Security, I read recently that the United States government is an insurance agency with an army in terms of our budget. And the the three big entitlements make up, I think, what, over 60% of our budget, and Social Security is a huge liability. Can you explain, just for those who may not be familiar with Social Security, what is it and what does it do? So the Social Security system was initially uh, founded in the 1930s uh, during the, the Great Depression era. So it was an FDR project. And the intention was to provide uh, essentially a safety net for the poor elderly. So those who were um, too old to be working and had retired, but didn't have enough income to sustain themselves. So it, it was a, sm- a small fraction of the population at the time. Uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's evolved into something much bigger since then. So, you know, in the beginning, I think it was what, like for every 20 some, maybe it was 200 people. There were people paying into the system. And then now we're down to what? Yes. So so the way people often, there's there's a misconception about Social Security. People often think that the money they're paying in through through payroll taxes every month is is their personal fund they're going to draw from in retirement. But in reality, uh, the money that you're paying in payroll taxes every month is paying for current retirees' uh, benefits. So that's fine if you have enough workers supporting retirees. So when when the program was was first founded, yeah, it was it was close to about twenty workers supporting every retiree. By the nineteen fifties, it was about nine or ten workers supporting every retiree, and today it's less than three workers supporting every retiree, and that's projected to go down to two. So. It, to say to say it's unsustainable is to sort of underemphasize the issue at hand. Yeah, and there's people like me who have paid in, and I guess I didn't. I just learned this that what you pay in, what you earn, and what rate you pay in is what they'll pay you out. So it's I started at a low end of uh, the Social Security payment, so I, I probably won't get that much. But I paid into it. I want my cut, uh, Jack. Am I being unrealistic? Like when I retire in 20, 30 years, will I be able to access Social Security? Or do you buy into the idea that this is just not sustainable and won't exist by the time we retire? Well, that that question depends on what policymakers do, if they do anything. So uh, what, what actually motivated me um, to, to write this piece was that in the run-up to the midterms, the president kept kept bragging about uh, Republicans wanting to put Social Security on the chopping block. So I did some digging to see what his uh, policy prescription was to ensure sustainability in the long term. He doesn't have one. So his policy is essentially to do nothing. And in 2034, which is according to the Social Security Trustees report that they publish every year, looking at the assets and liabilities and seeing how sustainable the, the program is, in 2034, 
the, tr- the, the social security trust fund will be depleted. Uh, what the trust fund is, is over the years, um, the people paying uh, payroll taxes, the, the amount of revenue collected from those folks was was usually higher than the benefits withdrawn by retirees. And so they built up a trust fund for a rainy day fund, essentially, for, for, for when there was a deficit. But since 2010, um, the, the number of, of, of people paying in is actually lower than those who are withdrawing the benefits. And so we've had a deficit. So they've been drawing from that trust fund over, over the last 12, 13 years or so. That trust fund is now down to $2.7 trillion, uh, and it's spiraling downwards very quickly. So by 2034, the trust fund will be depleted. What that means for beneficiaries like, like you and me is starting in 2034, there'll be an immediate 23% reduction in benef- the benefit payments. Uh, from, from there going forwards, unless they increase payroll taxes or, or, or some, some other budget maneuver, they're going to have to keep cutting those benefits over time. So you you will get social security benefits, but they won't be anything like the, the generous benefits our parents and grandparents would have, would have received. Okay, so that 23% cut, would that be immediate to anybody who's on Social Security at that point, like our grandparents? Correct. Okay, so not rolling out over time. No, that would be immediate to everybody who's enrolled in the program at that year. But then from there, moving forwards, um, as the revenues continue to to, to miss the the amount of benefits being withdrawn over time, that that twenty three percent is likely to grow larger and larger, so you'll get smaller and smaller amount of benefits, which, which is a, a a very different scenario to what people have gotten used to, where there's these huge increases with inflation adjustments. But with the trust fund not there, it's just not going to be possible to, to to make those to make those financing obligations. So let's talk about inflation because I know that Social Security uh, beneficiaries got an I, I think kind of a big increase this past year, right? Um, how do how do they determine that? I think it was 8.7%. They, they tend to look at the CPI. So the CPI is the inflation metric they use. Uh, and they look at um, Q4 through Q4. So um, 2021 through 2022 Q4. And they estimated that 8.7 was the number that, that that will be used for the cost of living adjustment for 2023. So that that's a... Um, that, I think 8.7% would be about 140 to $150 a month extra for the average social security beneficiary, which is which is really quite significant. Um, so the average beneficiary would, would likely be getting over $1,800 a month this year. Um, and, and I actually talked about the issues with the inflation metric in, in my piece. It was, the CPI was, was, was a fairly useful metric in the 1980s when they first applied this as the, as the metric used for cost of living adjustments. But it, it really tends to overemphasize um, a lot of price changes. Some economists have done some research into this, uh, not by a significant amount, but even a, a minuscule difference in price adjustments really has a, a, a significant impact on the trust fund depletion. So moving towards something like a chain CPI would actually improve sustainability of the Social Security Trust Fund uh, moving forward. Okay, explain chain CPI uh, to, to those of us who, you know, you've come on this program, you know, I don't know that much about economics, not like you. So explain it to me like, uh, like you're talking to a four year old. <laughs> so there are several different metrics for measuring inflation. Um, the Fed has uh, a, a PCE, uh, CPI is the one we often hear most about when we have the big uh, 
annual inflation metric uh, released every month. But chain CPI is an alternative version of, of, of CPI that tends to that, that tries to sort of cancel out some of the, the variability that, that comes over time. And uh, the CBO actually estimated uh, that, it, that it's about 0.3 percentage points lower on average than CPI. And they said that it actually, actually ref- reflects price changes more accurately than the CPI itself. Uh, and, and that's certainly been the case over the last two decades or so. So there, there's a good case to make for, for moving from, from CPI to chain CPI when measuring cost of living adjustments for social security benefits, especially as it, as it, as it, as it comes in, into the question of uh, trust fund sustainability over time. Okay, so you know this last one, for instance, and let, let me make sure I understand this because in your piece you're talking, you know, the the last year's increase is 144 per bene- beneficiary. Chain CPI would be 140 dollar a month in uh, 140 dollar a month increase. That's only four dollars. How does that save us any money if it's only four bucks? It it's, it it saves you. <clears throat> so it doesn't close the funding gap. But it's it's one reform that that makes a small difference that compounds over time. So four dollars a month is not a, is not a lot of money, but that's you know that's forty uh, forty eight dollars per year per beneficiary. There are sixty five million beneficiaries. So once you start doing the math, the numbers do start to add up, and it's the compounding effect over time. So inflation doesn't doesn't seem to bite that hard if you're only looking at one year's price change. When you start looking at the effects of inflation over 10, 20 years, the compounding effect uh, really starts to have an impact. So, for example, last year I was writing about uh, how, how terrible it was that we had 7% inflation. Well, 7% inflation looks bad, but when you, look, when you look at the compounding effect and you instead say 7% inflation means that the cost of everything doubles every 10 years, that starts to, that starts to make you realize the significance of, of, of compounding numbers over time. All right, one that is actually France last week raised the age. This is one that is always talked here in the United States. So they raised the the limit to sixty eight, I believe, which means no car is safe in Paris. Uh, but that is one reform that could be taken here. The current age is what, and what are proposals to raise it, and how would that how would that save the fund? Right. So, so in 1935, when the when the Social Security program was first launched. They determined that 65 was the appropriate age for uh, be, being eligible for with, withdrawing your social security benefits. That was based on on um, the, roughly the average age that people tended to stop working around that time, and it's also uh, has some relation to the the estimated life expectancy at that time. <laughs> Since then, life expectancy in the U.S. has increased by about 15 years, give or take, and the the uh, Social Security retirement eligibility age has only been raised by two years. So the average beneficiary is now drawing on their benefits for roughly 13 years more than they were when the program was initially started. And at the same time, in recent decades, they've created a a new eligibility um, bracket for people that want to retire earlier, but get slightly less benefits. So you can actually retire at 62 years old and get social security benefits at a slightly lower payment rate. So I think one of the ways, this is a, another thing that I mentioned in my in my piece, and a, another potential reform would be to do as France has just done, which is raise the retirement age from 67 to at least 68, and from there to tie the eligibility age to 
changes in the life expectancy over time. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I, I when we were kids, 65 was like ancient. But Harrison Ford's 80 and looks amazing in 1932. So, uh, you know, my grandparents are all lived into their mid-80s. Two of them are alive at 86. So it just seems common sense. Um, so first solution is to raise the rate. Second is to change how we do um, the adjustments for inflation. What is a third option for policymakers? A third option, uh, so in the piece, the third option I mentioned, I mean, there are many more than three that I could that I could run through, but the third one that I mentioned in my piece is something that I've, I've done some research into in the past um, based on experiences in the UK uh, with, with, with policy. Um, so it, one program that's actually tied into the Social Security program is the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. Uh, the, the program is set up so people who are, who are in, incapable of working because of a disability, they can they can draw benefits from this program as well. And so there are now 12 million uh, benefit recipients on the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. But this number has really exploded, especially in over the last two decades, which is which is slightly unusual given that um, the, the the kinds of work that people are doing today versus versus decades ago, it's much less uh, manually intensive tends to be more white collar jobs today yet more and more people are claiming physical disabilities and mental disabilities and so there's some real issues with the eligibility criteria for this program they have what's called the medical vocational grid and i've done some digging into this in in, in prior research it, it just makes it really really vague to to talk about um what sorts of disabilities qualify um for example there's been an explosion in people who claim to have back pain. It's something that's very vague and difficult to, to sort of prove uh, to, to a physician in order to qualify for these benefits. And so there's really been a huge explosion in uh, beneficiaries in this program since those medical vocational uh, guidelines have been implemented. So I think some, some somebody has to take a look at those, those guidelines and make some reforms there. Um, we should be drawing lessons from other countries that have successfully done this. So the UK did something similar uh, about 10, 15 years ago with, with reforms to its disability insurance program. And it's it, it, it saw a huge increase in the number of beneficiaries going back to work, getting back into work. It's a matter of making a distinction between being disabled and being incapacitated. So you literally cannot work. There is a, there is a very clear distinction. Uh, and and it, it's quite clear that a large portion of those 12 million beneficiaries are capable of doing some form of work. All right, and I know you're you're more of an economist than a political analyst, but these all seem common sense to me. What are the chances that this will get done in time? Um, well, <laughs> this is where it gets depressing. Uh, this is why I like the policy and not the politics. I don't have high hopes. I I have slightly higher hopes than I did last year, just because we have a divided government. But Social Security is, is, is truly the holy grail of, of American politics. Public support for the program is, is through the roof. Yeah, Trump and never not, even threatened to talk about touching it in any way. Right. And we're not making the case that, that, that I'm not making the case that we need to scrap it altogether. I'm saying if we're going to have this program and it's going to be around in 75 years, you're going to have to make some reforms and you're going to have to do them sooner rather than later. 
And the longer you postpone the pain, the larger those benefit cuts or tax increases are, are going to be. My reason for writing this piece was I wanted to try and appeal to a sort of bipartisan group. So I avoided talking about nominal uh, benefit cuts or uh, tax payroll tax increases. I wanted to try and find other avenues that both sides could possibly agree on. Maybe I'm hoping for, a, for, for too much. Um, but I think it's a good time to have this discussion, particularly given that we're now moving into the um, debt ceiling debates and there's that, and we do have divided government. So there is some room for maneuverability around considering serious reforms to, the, to, to what are the biggest programs, Medicare and Social Security. Uh, and we have five months now to have those debates. And I think this should be a part of that discussion. Now, uh, you know, I don't think I'm betraying any confidences that you're you're uh, you were not born in America and you probably have a much better understanding of British politics than I do. But when I look at American politics and the need for reforms like this, it sort of makes me um, uh, feel hopeless, lost. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I do do in the United Kingdom when there's big challenges like this. Is it easier for things to get done than it is for here, or is it just as intractable? That's a good question, and it, and it's it's not a clear. I, I don't have a clear cut answer, but I would say this: it's easier to get things done in a in, in a parliamentary system, but that's not always a good thing. If if there are reformers in government that share ideas with you, then it's a great thing. But when those people are not in government, it, it, it's it's quite the contrary. So. It, it's a matter of, uh, do you want to have a system where you can quickly get things done, but things can quickly go wrong? Or do you want to have a system like the US where you do have some clear checks and balances? And so you often end up with stalemate and not not getting very much done. But at the same time, when you have somebody in power who wants to do terrible things, that's actually a benefit to have that sort of system in place. Yeah. So Yeah, it's a lot harder. It's a lot more insular when it comes to the protections. Okay, I mean, so these are great reforms and kind of nibbling around the edges. I mean, they're big, big things, right? But, like, if uh, I waved a wand and put you in charge of design, redesigning the system or getting rid of the system or, you know, you know, one of the ideas that when I was uh, younger and watching politics was the lockbox, you know, with uh, Bush and Gore always debating what, what to do with Social Security and how to reform it. And Bush's idea was allowing me to contribute to my own account. I mean, are there some big ideas out there for Social Security that you say, I know this is a pipe dream, but I think this is really interesting? I haven't seen any big outside-of-the-box ideas. I'm, I mostly see proposals for the sort of reforms that I'm talking about. But... Um, in terms of big ideas, I think there's a serious lack of big ideas, uh, particularly in the U.S. politics space. Um, hopefully, we'll see more of them. Um, maybe I can draw from some international examples and do some more digging and come up with some uh, alternative market-oriented systems. If we were starting from from scratch, it would be it would be a much easier thing to argue. But given that we've we've, we've got this system and it's got these funding flaws, we're going to have to try and work with what we have. Um, I think another possible reform that should be talked about is uh, diversifying the trust fund. Uh, it, it may at this point be a, too little too late, but I think it's still something we have to consider. The trust fund tends to accrue interest based on essentially on, on treasuries. So it, it only accrues about 2% interest per year, which isn't enough growth to sustain itself. 
I think we should be seriously considering diversifying that. You know, the stock market returns 10, 10% per year before inflation. And I think having a small fraction of the trust fund diversified could, could give us an extra percent or two of growth, which again, is it sounds small, but when you add all these reforms up together, it, it could increase um, f- funding sustainability for the through the 75 year. Yeah, I once talked to the treasurer of the state of Indiana and they invest money. I mean, that's always like part of the, you know, all these pension funds are invested mm-hmm. in in maybe ETFs or different trade trading funds. Or my own 401k is in, you know, index funds, basically. Mm-hmm. But Social Security often gets called a pyramid scheme because it doesn't have any actual investment into it. It's just sort of you're just putting money into it. So it does seem to make sense that maybe, you know, the I don't know, it's probably good and bad if the United States became the biggest investor uh, in, right. in some of these traded funds. But um, all right, Actually, go ahead. Yeah. So there was a congressman, I think he's newly appointed, who um, he, he, was on an, he was in an interview last week with uh, Joy Reid. Uh, his name's uh, Byron Donalds, and he he mentioned that the Social Security Trust Fund was going to be depleted in in twelve thirteen years, uh, and then Joy Reid um, responded with a thought provoking and stimulating critical thinking skills <laughs> by by shouting the words "That's not true" thirteen times. But then what was interesting was that um, Donalds mentioned that the S and P five hundred uh, returns since two thousand and six would have more than taken care of Social Security. Um, to which Reid responded. You want to privatize social security, so you know this is this debate is being had, but the same old uh, fallacies and arguments that that the other side is is, is always pushing back on are they're, they're still there. You know, there's a big difference between saying you want to privatize social security and saying we need to diversify the funds. You know, if, if that means putting twenty percent of the funds in into equities rather than into treasuries, that's that's very different to saying well we need to privatize the entire system. Or, or but, like in the Obama years, where they, you know, they want to kill Grandma. I mean, there was literally an official Democratic Party advertisement with a Republican pushing an old lady, you know, Grandma out of her wheelchair down a hill. So I don't know. It's this debate has been a mess for a long time, and will continue to be a mess because it's very personal. You know, I, it's it's we see the money come out of our paychecks. We expect to get our money when we're older. People who are older rely on it. So, yeah, I, I get that it's personal. All right, Jack, shameless self-promotion time. Where can we follow your work? Best place to follow my work is on my Young Voices bio page. And you can uh, also find my Twitter handle there if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> All right, very good. Thank you so much for joining me, Jack. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, listeners, for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show. We greatly appreciate you being here. And if you learned something, please share it with your friends. That's the best way to help any creator, like a writer like Jack or a podcaster like myself, grow in their careers. So thank you so much. We'll see you again here on The Chris Spangle Show.